0: raised in church. I think I was a pretty good kid most of the time. I had, like, I really, like, turned the corner after high school, you know, like, I've been all in, but there's still these moments where I feel like I'm drawn a certain way, right, that's not in line with what I know I'm supposed to behave as. Especially in the last six or eight months, I've realized, like, who I am, like, what my personality type is. We've done some things, like, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, I know I'm an Enneagram 8, and so as I've become more familiar with this, I'm just reading through that personality type, and I'm seeing, like, basically all my junk kind of get exposed, like my motives that are there that nobody can see based on my actions. And if you're unfamiliar, an Enneagram 8, like, on their worst days, they can be egocentric, they can be domineering. Um, In fact, I was reading a book about the Enneagram, and it was talking about 8s, and, like, the worst-case scenario, one of the examples was, like, Murderer, And I was like, oh, <laughs> cool. Uh, some of you may not be familiar with Enneagram, but you might be familiar with the Myers-Briggs. Uh, Mallory had me do a Myers-Briggs test on Facebook a couple of months ago <laughs> to see what, uh, what my Harry Potter character would be. <laughs> Any guesses? I got, I wish, I got Voldemort. <laughs> no lie. So as I've, like, wrestled with this, and, and it's not that I've just, like, you know, the Voldemort one is pretty silly, but it's, like, I'm looking at these these types and these personalities and the pitfalls, and I'm seeing it in my heart, like, oh, man, I do see myself grabbing for power. I see myself being egocentric at times, and, and I just felt, like, this sense of shame and fear about that, and uh, actually, some some people that I work with, they're familiar with Enneagram, and they would ask my type, and I'd tell them that I'm, a, I'm an Enneagram 8, and I would just see their face kind of, like, like, pull back a little bit, and I would say, you, you've had experiences, you've had bad experiences with Enneagram 8s in the past, haven't you? And they would say, yeah. And a lot of times, actually, it's been church leaders that have been abusive. And, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> I just became afraid to live life as myself. I felt like I needed to assume a false identity. So, my first poll was to try just not to be bad. Like, if I can just resist being an unhealthy version of myself then everything will be all right. But in reality, if you're living just to not be bad, and you're trying to not be an unhealthy version of yourself, but not concerned at all with being a healthy version of yourself, that's just another form of, of bondage. And I, I wonder if you guys have ever felt that way yourselves. I think a lot of times we, we feel like we have to keep our darkness in check, or maybe we're going to lose our salvation. Uh, especially as a kid growing up in a church that talked about, um, end times, in times, and the rapture a lot, I was constantly worried about like, Man, if I just like let this darkness out for like a split second, and that's when everybody's clothes end up neatly folded on the ground, <laughs> I'm going to be here by myself. Like My parents are going to be gone. I'm not old enough to work. I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> we fear that if we step into the light, that our darkness, the darkness that's in the deep parts of our heart, is going to be exposed, and then we're going to be condemned. By God, by our church, by our neighbors, by the people that know us. We think that the best that we can hope for is to say the right things and to do the right things and to pray that the darkness of our hearts is never found out. We try to just modify our behavior because our heart, our wants, our desires can't be reckoned with. They're not going to be redeemed this side of heaven. That's the lie that, that I believe sometimes. If people knew how greedy or selfish or petulant I can be inside my heart, then they would condemn me. They wouldn't be, want to be around me. These are all lies. This is a shadow gospel. This is not the gospel that Jesus came to proclaim and live out. So let's let's start at the beginning of our passage. At the beginning of John, Jesus is referencing back to this, this wonky passage in Numbers about putting the bronze serpent up on a stick. And it's not... Apparent right away, especially as we're so familiar with John three sixteen. I mean, we lack context a lot of the times when we look at these scriptures. When we look at that, we're like, I don't really know what he's doing. Like maybe it's a callback, just because he's going to be up on a tree. You know, it's wood and like the serpent on a pole. That's probably there's something there. You know, maybe it's just poetic. But the uh, the poetic like the names for these passages that a lot of people that are pretty common is look at it and live, especially the Numbers passage. Look at it and live. Look at the snake and you'll be healed. And so it's like, a look at it and live part one and two. And it's such a strange way, in numbers, it's such a strange way for God to save the Israelites. I mean, we know that God could have just driven the snakes away. So why is he having them look up at this, this thing that obviously, I mean, it should be logically causing a ton of fear for them, right? This is the thing that's like been sent to destroy them. They're seeing people around them die and be bitten. And God's telling them to look at this, the source of their would-be death. God has the Israelites face their own would-be death by looking at the snake. We have this instinctive desire to skip over Good Friday. I think it's a natural desire as we go through Lent to try to skip over Good Friday, and we're just looking forward to Easter. I know that's how I feel. I'm really excited about Easter. And I think it's because we just have this subconscious resistance to looking at our own would-be death, at looking at our shame or the things that we're afraid of. We don't want to look at Jesus on the cross, especially as good Protestants. I mean, we just want to look at the cross without Jesus on him. We wouldn't put him back on the cross. He's not on the cross anymore. We don't want to look at Jesus on the cross. We're uncomfortable about it. But the Bible is telling us to look at it and live. It would be a lot easier to talk about John 3.16 without this surrounding context of look at it and live, without the bronze serpent being referenced. When we could just think, well, God loved me a ton. As long as I believe this, it's all peachy. Like There's not really any hardship. Like Jesus died a long time ago. I just believe and it's all great. But God is asking us to face our own death when we look at the cross. That's why Jesus has brought these things in reference to each other. He's, he's calling us to look at the cross and see the source of our own would-be death. It's important to distinguish that it's not so that we can just stare at the cross until we feel so sad about the situation that, that he suffered. That It's not so that we can look at it and feel ashamed of the fact that Jesus had to die because of how bad we were. God's not a bad parent. He's not somebody trying to use shame levers to motivate us or coerce us. He's not saying, look at this. Look at the mess you made. You should be ashamed of yourself. He's saying, look at how much I love you. Look at how much I love you. I would send my own son to die on the cross to be the embodiment of your own would-be death. And that's part of what Lent is all about. We're journeying with Christ towards the cross. So we pick up the passage in 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's son. Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. He's not afraid of your sin. He's not afraid of your inner darkness, your deepest desires that you're afraid to let out. He came at, like a doctor to heal those. That's exactly what he came to heal, not just to change your actions, to get you to say the right things or do the right things, to be good little boys and girls, but he came to wrestle with the darkest parts of you that you're afraid to let out, to heal those parts of you, not just to keep them at bay. Jesus isn't afraid of your deepest desires. He's saying, Look at it and live, not to be ashamed, not to be condemned, but to be healed. Jesus didn't come to heal our sin by avoiding it. He faces it head on, and he moves directly through our sin and shame on the cross, which is exactly what we find ourselves so resistant to do. We don't want to look at it, and we'd rather just not deal with it at all. Let's just forget that I did that. As long as I don't do that, as long as I don't say that, then we don't have to worry about this problem, even if our hearts have that darkness there, even if we have those urges, if we have that hate, that jealousy, that greed rise up at times. We're afraid of dealing with that because we don't think at times that it can actually be redeemed, but that's exactly what God is doing. That's exactly what Jesus was sent to do, was to move through our sin. Jesus is also, I want to make the point that I think Jesus is not condemning those who don't believe. The scripture is very specific in saying that those who don't believe stand condemned already, that they already are standing in condemnation because I think there's a way of reading this passage that's a little bit confusing saying Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. But then at the same time, it's also saying those who don't believe, they end up condemned. So he kind of is. It's just semantics. He did come to condemn those people. But Jesus didn't come to condemn them. They're already standing in condemnation. Moving on to verse 19. This is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but people loved darkness. People loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. And will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. All this light and darkness makes it uh, unavoidable to talk about the fact that Nicodemus, this conversation is between Jesus and Nicodemus. And the scripture states that Nicodemus came at night. So Nicodemus is a Jewish leader in that time. And he is seeing Jesus' works, and he's, he, he basically is, is saying he can't deny that God is obviously a part of what Jesus is doing. But he comes to him at night because what, what would people think if he was coming to him? What would it look like for him to be exposed and to be doing that in the light of day? It's not just happenstance that he comes at night, and then there's all this, this bit about light and dark at the end of the passage. People are not in the dark as punishment because their, their deeds are evil. They choose the dark. They love the dark because they're afraid that their evil deeds will be found out. We love darkness because we want to hide our deepest, most embarrassing sins, our desires, our wants that we don't want anybody else to see. It's the whole reason that Adam and Eve made clothes out of fig leaves in the garden. Because they didn't want to be seen. They wanted to hide those actions from God. They didn't want to be seen, so they tried to choose darkness. Those who won't step into the light are already condemned... And part of their condemnation, I think there is an end-of-your-life judgment. You know, I think we stand before God. But part of this being, living outside the light, living in darkness, the condemnation is having to hide, just like Jean Valjean. Like, living as a free man out of prison, but having to take on a false identity and live in constant fear of being found out as a fraud, that is bondage. That's not true freedom. It's the same with me as, as somebody that's uh, wrestling with my personality and knowing these inner desires for power and control of things. When I, when I try to hide that, I constantly have to live in fear of people finding out that I'm a fraud, that I'll be exposed one day as somebody that's super selfish and egocentric and a power maniac. That's bondage. It doesn't sound like freedom. <laughs> and then at the end of the passage, it says, living by the truth, living in the light, it means that It makes it plain that your deeds are done in sight of God. I think that's an important distinction there as well. It doesn't mean that living in the light means you're never going to slip up. You're never going to have these desires arise again. But it's acknowledging that you're not living in hiding. You're not trying to hide your actions, your heart, your wants from God. You can live free because you know that there's no condemnation in Christ. He came not to condemn you, but to heal that darkness, that we can live open and unafraid. And it kind of seems... A little bit silly when you think about it. I mean, going back to Adam and Eve, they sewed these clothes out of fig leaves. Like, they're not successfully hiding from God at all. But they're just entrapping themselves in this prison of feeling like they need to hide. And I think we do that same thing all the time. God sees our hearts. He already knows our deepest desires and our wants. But we're setting ourselves up to be in prison, to be in bondage, by trying to hide those things from him. He is not afraid of your deepest, darkest desires. He came to heal you. So Jean Valjean is living in this bondage, this condemnation, by living in fear constantly that his identity is going to be found out. He eventually uh, confesses his identity to Javert when someone else is about to be punished for being Jean Valjean. And he ends up paying for that. He ends up having to go back to prison. And then once once again, later in the story, he has to confess confess his real identity to his his son-in-law. So uh, Marius is going to marry Jean Valjean's stepdaughter, Cosette, and he knows, Jean Valjean knows that it's going to cost him by revealing his identity as an ex-convict. He knows that it's, it's got a lot attached to it, but he knows that his confession is going to take away this, this shadow that's been hanging over his life for his entire life, and his motivation that finally gets him to do it is because he knows that this shadow has been following his stepdaughter's life as well. And if he doesn't come clean, that it's going to continue. That shadow, that darkness, that hiding is still going to be following her as she goes through life. Jean Valjean lives, he decides to live in the light, and it initially costs him. Marius attempts to keep Cosette from having a relationship with him. Only eventually when Marius finds out that Jean Valjean saved his life, does do he and Cosette rush to come and reconcile with Valjean. And it's right at the end of his life, on his deathbed. But... They reconcile, and he's already come out. He's come out of the darkness and into the light, and he's able to die in peace with it all out on the table, knowing that this shadow is not going to follow his stepdaughter any further. I feel like I'm in a similar position. I've been trying to not be bad, to not allow myself to be an unhealthy version of my true personality, but God did create me as who I am, as Voldemort. (laughs) <laughs> God did create me as an Enneagram 8. True, true flourishing is what God desires for for you. He created you with a, a personality, with a purpose, with a calling. And that calling is not to just not be bad. That's not flourishing. That's bondage. Holiness and righteousness are about more than just not being bad. Flourishing is, it means more than just avoiding messing up. To be truly good, to flourish, I have to be true to who I am my God-given identity, and you guys have to be the same. And we, each, each personality, each situation that we face, we have these pitfalls that we could, we could get entangled in. But God knows those. Freedom is being yourself and knowing that Christ isn't your accuser, but he's your advocate. And that he's your doctor, that he came to heal you, all of you. Freedom is not having to hide from God. Freedom is not having to run from who you are. So God is saying to us this morning that Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us from condemnation. He came to heal our hearts and redeem our whole person. He came to heal our darkness. We aren't saved by avoiding or repressing our darkness. We are saved by facing it and moving directly through it, just like Jesus did when he came and he, he went through the cross. And that's what we're, we're, we're called to join with him in that. God's saying, look at it and live. Look at the cross and live. Not look at how bad you are. Look at how much shame you brought on yourself that my son had to die for you. He's saying, look at how much I love you that I would send my only son to die a terrible death. Not because of, don't look at it because of how bad you are. Don't look at it to feel ashamed or con- to receive condemnation. Look at it and see God's love for you. Brene Brown says that shame cannot survive being spoken. Our shame wants to stay in darkness, and that's what keeps us in these these cycles of darkness, and that's why we imprison ourselves in darkness. That's why we've learned to love darkness. Uh, I was thinking about in The the Dark Knight Rises, if you've seen it, Bane's fighting with Batman, and by the way, Mallory's got a really great Bane voice if you want to hear it after service. (laughs) She's really proud of it as well. (laughs) Um, But Bane is saying you know, to Batman, that he's just, he's adopted the darkness, but Bane was born into darkness. And it's just the reverse with us. We were created for light. We were born to live in light, but we've adopted this darkness because it, it does something for us. It makes us feel safe or more comfortable because it doesn't let out our deepest, darkest desires. It doesn't let our secret out, we think, but it's actually the very thing that's entrapping us oftentimes. This morning, you can let go of whatever you're holding back, afraid that you'll receive condemnation if you step into the light. God sent his son not to condemn, but to save you. And not just part of you, not just your what you say or what you do, what people see, but your heart, your desires, and that deep, shadowy place that nobody's aware of what's going on there. God came to redeem that part of you, too. God is so real that he can only meet you where you're really at. So... Where are you really at this morning? What broken desire, what darkness in your heart are you hiding? What are you in touch with this morning? Perhaps you're in touch with the rage that bubbles over when things don't go your way or when you can't get your kids to do what you want them to do. Maybe it's lust. Maybe you've believed that you have to discipline your body to never act on your desires, but you've never believed that God could actually transform those desires and heal those desires in your heart. It could be that you're checked out at work or with your family because you want something more. Maybe you're in touch with how embarrassed you are when your public image is at risk, when something is, is out of whack and you're in front of people and you're just aware that all these eyes are on you. Today, you are invited to live in the light, not by eradicating all of your darkness on your own, but by facing down your snakes and by moving through your sins with God to the full redemption of your heart. Let's take a moment. And just clear out some space. Just, just listen. Let God bring to mind an area that you may be in touch with this. A darkness, a secret that you're worried about getting out, that you've been afraid that, that God brought condemnation for.